added meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, not intentionally, but if it happens, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick. And they will not get COVID-19. They will not pass some pandemic virus. They shall be healed. Praise God. I want you to wave to somebody. Yeah, we can't shake their hands, you know, elbow them or do something. Pat them on the back. Maybe that's safe. I don't know. And then you can be seated. The words contained in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah graphically describe the malicious handling and sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Of course, uh, this was written uh, prophetically because it was about 750 years <clears throat> excuse me, before Jesus would actually uh, be crucified and treated in the manner that Isaiah saw. Um, this Messianic prophecy opens with these words in verse number 1 of Isaiah 53. And right out of the gate, the prophet says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, I don't have time to, to go into that, but those are two separate things. Belief is one thing, but the revealing of his power, his arm represents power. Believing is one thing, but then having his power revealed, of course, is entirely different. The message that flowed from the mouths of prophets throughout the course of Israel's history was both powerful as well as pungent. And it proved to be extremely unfortunate for many of the prophets uh, because it led many times to their imprisonment, to their mistreatment, uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, to their untimely and very painful death. It also led Jesus Christ and his burden for the children of Israel and, and Jerusalem to say this in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you can just feel the, the, the passion in his voice. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How oft would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I hope and pray that it is not a commentary on anybody here today that Jesus is reaching for you and you will not. 
I hope it's not the commentary written on any of us that Jesus is dealing with us and drawing us into a deeper depth or into a relationship or into a, a saving experience with him, and yet we are reluctant and reticent, and we will not yield to the Holy Ghost. I hope it's not written on somebody's life that God wanted to speak a prophetic word through them, but you quenched the Spirit and shut it down and would not allow him to use you. One of the kings uh, that was alive during Isaiah's uh, ministry as prophet also with Jeremiah, but Manasseh was a king that followed a long line, and he did not believe in the word of God, and uh, he did not believe the report of the prophets, certainly did not believe what Isaiah wrote in the 53rd chapter of the book that he penned. His ungodly and ruthless reign led to he didn't do it himself, but he caused it, led to the destruction of Jerusalem, and it led to the conquest by the Babylonians that would last for 70 long years. You want to know who's responsible? Manasseh. What was a long line of kings that sinned and so on, but Manasseh was just, I'm mean, going to read about him. This guy was unbelievably ruthless. He was, he was just, just awful. And according to tradition, his hatred of God and then therefore his hatred of the prophets was, was uh, so severe that he, uh, when he had Isaiah arrested, this is tradition now, it's not documented anywhere, but it's in, it's in biblical history as far as tradition goes, that he had Isaiah sawn in half. I'm sorry, you shoot me in the head, do anything, but leave the saw in the, in the toolbox. None of us can even fathom that uh, way to go. So we've seen in the Word of God what happens when men believe. And we've seen in the Word of God what happens when men do not believe. So I want to talk to you for a little bit today, and I've entitled this message, The Shadow of Faith. And I hope you'll understand why we chose that as we go along. First of all, Psalms 36 and 7 says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Psalms 91 and 1 says, He that, believeth, or he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. You want to know how powerful God is? Even though he is invisible, he can still cast a shadow. Wow. But God has ordained that New Testament believers, as they stand, facing the radiant light, the day spring from on high that has visited us, as we face the, the radiant light of Jesus Christ, that it will automatically then cast a shadow behind us. There's not many shadows in the building right now. They are faint. You can see them because the light is coming down. But in prayer this morning, you could see uh, very definite shadows, the shapes of chairs and people uh, within the auditorium. But within the shadow that's cast uh, by a believer, God has promised something. He's promised to manifest definitive and miraculous signs. Acts chapter 5 and 15 says, Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. It's not going to catch them all, but it's going to catch somebody. 
And we can, only, we can only believe at this point that if Peter's shadow crossed somebody that was ill, it didn't matter what they had. It didn't matter how terminal it was. It didn't matter how curable it was. They were made whole. And so the Bible says in verse 16, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were what? Healed every one. Is there anybody here today that, that uh, I'm not, I'm not going to ask, could you be healed of something that's not a big trouble to you, but is there anybody here that really needs God to touch you in your body? Yeah, yeah. So we didn't come here to play church. We didn't come here to get out the book of Acts tiddlywinks and see who's going to win the game board. We came here to experience something from God. Romans chapter 4.17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. A lot of people experience the physical aspect of God's people where they gather their presence, their voice, their fellowship, their personalities. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a tangible kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. But since the kingdom of God is not tangible, it operates under a different set of laws, different precepts, different principles than the world within which we live. There's a mechanical and a a scientific reason why uh, something happens when you turn the key on your vehicle. There's, There's a reason for that. It's not a miracle. Now, if you have no spark plugs... It would be a miracle. So I'm talking about a kingdom that operates outside of the sphere of the natural laws within which we pretty much base everything in our lives. And I feel this is important. It really has nothing to do with the message. But when you are born into the kingdom of God, God expects you to live based on the Rules and precepts of the covenant. See, a lot of people get baptized in Jesus' name, and they receive the Holy Ghost, but they're not at church enough to really hear teaching. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness. You understand? So there's a lot of people baptized, walking around with the Holy Ghost. You haven't got a clue what God expects of one of his citizens that's been born into his kingdom. You say, well, do I really need that? Yeah, you really need that. You need to know how to talk. You need to know how to walk. You need to know how to pay your bills. You need to know how to dress your body. It's in the, the terms of the covenant that you were born into. What I don't know won't hurt me. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it will. You need, to, you need to come and find out how God expects you to live. Why? Because the Bible says that we're all going to be judged. One book is going to be open, the, 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 the book of life. Amen. Say, well, I got my name in there. I'll be okay. No, but there are other books going to be open too. And they got to line up, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, they got to line up. If they don't line up. I just had to get that off my chest. So 11th chapter of Hebrews is all about faith. Because God has chosen to manifest his power 
in order to meet the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional needs of man through supernatural means. I mean, you, you may have nothing but hell in your life right now, but you can go home with the joy of the Lord. I'm not talking to be about being slapped stupid by the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about God put so much joy in you, you don't care what's going around. It's just, God is just so good, man, God. That's supernatural. That's not, you know, that's not drugs. That's not therapy. That's supernatural. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So faith is always, your faith, my faith, our faith, is always colliding and contending with our human ability, our human reasoning. We want to do it ourselves. We want to go to the doctor, just give me a pill that's going to solve this. Just give me a, just get, put a name on my pain and I'll feel better about it. That's the way we work everything out. I, I, I liken it under a helium balloon that rises up uh, from the earth into the atmosphere. But no matter how high it goes, it is always subject to the gravity. The gravity is always pulling on that balloon. It's just like that in the spirit. No matter where you go in the realm of the spirit of God, there's always that, that humanity, that flesh, that carnality, that, that natural earthly thing in you that's trying to pull you back down to this earth. When you're trying to walk in the spirit and walk by faith and you're trying to be used to God, it's always nagging at you. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And so when Jairus received his uh, uh, word that his daughter was going to die, he didn't go looking for Jesus and invite him to a barbecue. He went looking for Jesus because he was desperate. And uh, his daughter was sick and his world was crashing down when a messenger came and said, don't bother the master, come on home, prepare for the funeral because your daughter has died. Some of us are caught in Maybe not that terrible of a reality, but a lot of us are caught in a reality that there is no natural way out. We live with the consolation that somebody penned these stupid words one time, this too shall pass. Yeah. But in the worst moment of his life, Jesus looked at him and revealed to this man, he didn't deserve it. You understand that he didn't deserve it. He wasn't a disciple, wasn't a follower. He was ruler of a synagogue. If anything, he could have been a possible enemy of Christ. But Jesus revealed in that moment the unmitigated power of faith. And he said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Only believe. So you don't have to understand it. And here's where you get tripped up. I don't understand much about internal combustion, but I know it gets me where I want to go. You don't have to understand. This is not a theological challenge for any of us. All you have to do is believe it, is believe it. So in Hebrews 11 and 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out. He went out not knowing whither 
he went. Has anybody ever done that? Has anybody ever just got in the car and just went? I mean, get on the highway, leaving the state of Florida, not even know where you're going? I did it by accident one time. <laughs> it's not intentional. I wouldn't recommend it, especially if you're with your spouse, because she will literally, whew. I'm not even sure. That's been 35 years ago, and I'm not even sure she's calmed down yet. <laughs> on the way to church, I'm going to tell on you, sweetie. On, on the way to church, she said the African cloud is hoovering over us. I said, where are you from, Missouri? So we had a little discussion about hoovering and hovering. Anyway. Romans 4 and 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, talking about Abraham. It's before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, that calleth those things which be not as though they were. I'm going to begin now to get into what I really want to preach to you about. Uh, there's a reason why Abraham was called father of the faithful, because he believed God before he saw God act or move. Um, his faith earned him more than biblical significance or a title. It earned him eternal inheritance. But something happened to the descendants of Abraham, uh, and it began, as far as I can tell, with Jacob. It seems to me that Isaac's only role was to bring Esau and Jacob into the world. But at least he had a reason for being here, right? So it looks to me from, from my perception that what I'm going to talk to you about that happened began with Jacob. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, if you've ever uh, seen it when you were reading the scriptures, but if you look at what Jacob said to God when he spent that first night in Bethel, and had the dream with the ladder and all that, I, I think you will see what I'm talking about. It's in Genesis 28, beginning in verse 20. Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me. What? If God will be with me. You see, too many of us have if in our conversation. He didn't get that from Grandpa, and he didn't get it from his dad. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat, are you kidding me, and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Lord, if you can put Five guys, burgers and fries, sitting on my table, hot and ready to eat. When I get home, I'll get thanks for my meal. This is where this started. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the... Uh, the tenth unto thee. And so what we see here is a paradigm shift in Jacob's faith 
from what Abraham's faith was, making his obedience to God and his service to God contingent on God's divine provision, more specifically, meeting his every demand. We see it again in Jacob years later in Genesis 45. Joseph is supposedly dead. We know he's not dead. He's in Egypt going through a prison, being exalted, coming out. Now he's in charge of the whole nation. But as far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. That's what he believes. And so they went up out of Egypt, and that's uh, 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 Jacob's sons, ten of them now, went up out of Egypt because, remember, he kept Simeon in jail. And they came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father, and they told him, saying, hey, we got, a, we got a word for you. Joseph's alive. You know how it is, how difficult it is to counter unbelief? To reverse somebody that's filled with unbelief? Joseph's alive, and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted because he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. But it was not until he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, that his spirit, or the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. He wouldn't believe. But when he sees the wagons filled with stuff, all of a sudden, the old Jacob was revived. This is the way I set up my relationship with God years ago. Now I see, and now I will believe. And he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. This paradigm, a reversal of faith, was entrenched within the children of Israel for the next four years. 130 years. You want to know why it's so difficult to convince somebody that baptizes in titles that it's not valid, that it must be in the name of Jesus? Because they are, they are believing something that is entrenched and has been entrenched for 1,500 years. And it would exist in the children of Israel on the very day that Moses would walk into town and say, I just had a visitation of God. But something happened when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. He said unto the Lord, or he had unto the Lord a quite lengthy conversation. Um, God called Moses, of course. We know the story to return to Egypt, and his purpose was to deliver Israel uh, from 430 years of bondage, only one thing standing in his way, and that's Pharaoh and his army. Of course, Moses quibbled over his ability to speak, which most of us in this room can identify with, I'm sure. Uh, but God quickly countered that by assigning Aaron to do his talking for him. But after that, uh, uh, it was after this that Moses posed his first argument, the most demanding argument, the most difficult argument to overcome. You see, we, we have a reason why we can't shout. There's a reason why I can't dance before God. There's a reason why I can't run the aisles. It's not that I want to, I can't. 
There's a reason why I can't speak in tongues fluently as the Spirit gives the utterance. There's a reason for all, all of the things that we won't do and can't do for God. We all have reasons. Well, shout unto the Lord with the voice of triumph. Oh, oh but I'm a very soft-spoken pe- person. And that's only written to people that have loud mouths and extroverts. When are we going to obey the word of God? When are we going to really start living according to the word of God? I think you understand what I'm saying. So Moses posed this real difficult problem. And it's in Exodus chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And Moses answered the Lord, but behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, the Lord hasn't appeared unto you. What are you talking about? And so the entire premise and operation of God in delivering the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage was predicated on something that they needed that they did not have at that time, and that is faith. You want to come out, it's going to take faith. You want to break out, it's going to take faith. You want to break through, it's going to take faith. But why do you suppose that Moses, while standing barefoot on holy ground and talking to the almighty God who is, who is manifesting himself in a bush that's burning but not being consumed, why or how do you think it is that, that he would think for one moment that they wouldn't believe? Answer simple, he didn't believe. I'm standing here talking to God, and I don't believe. I'm looking at a burning bush, and the, and the leaves are green and thriving, and I don't believe it. So I really don't think when I get back and tell them this story, they're going to believe. When I'm standing here, and I don't even believe. I'm getting ready to get on this now. So the Lord says to him in verse 2, "What? okay, all right, I got this. What's in your hand? He says, a rod. So he says, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. Moses fled. My favorite response is, well. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. Why the tail? Because that thing will bite you. That's a real snake. This is not a rubber snake from Toys R Us. This is real. So use use some brains here. He put forth his hand, he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Then the Lord says this in verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Of course, the object of this lesson was when you get back or you get to Egypt, you're going to do this in front of the people there and go, oh, my gosh, he's telling us the truth. But then the Lord says in verse 6, furthermore, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, put it into thy hand into thy bosom again. He put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And here it is. And it shall come to pass. Listen to this. If they will not believe thee, nor hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, I love this, 
if they will not believe also these two signs. Neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. My goodness. The paradigm. When I see the miracle, then I will believe. When I see a supernatural manifestation of God and his power, then and only then, Jacob, what in the world did you do? What did you start in Bethel the first night you laid your head on a rock and made some foolish covenant with God? And now your descendants are stricken with the same broken paradigm. One of the things it shows us is that God is willing to go to great lengths to convince his people to believe. He's willing to go a long way to increase our faith so that he can do what we sang about a while ago. God will do what God wants to do. Praise God. You know what faith is, really? It's releasing God to be God. Why would we want him to be any less than God? And so from the moment that Moses stepped back into Egypt until Israel crossed the Jordan River, 40 years later, the people of God witnessed his majesty and his power and his miracles every day from sunup to sundown, from sundown to sunrise, 24 hours a day was an ongoing perpetual display of God's miraculous power. In spite of that, it is written in Numbers chapter 14 and 11, and the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. The paradigm man following the miraculous is broken. It's faulty. Proverbs 27 and 20 says hell and destruction are never full. But likewise it says so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Let me tell you something. If God raised a dead person today, he'd have to do something even greater next Sunday to get you to believe. If you saw a cancerous lump on somebody's faith just disappear right before your eyes, has God healed them? God's going to have to do something beyond that next Sunday. Because when you follow the miraculous, God can't do enough to convince you. And so in spite of this, the paradigm of God's people following miraculous signs and wonders would persist even, even long after Jesus was born and even after he had called his 12 apostles. My God, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's disturbing. 
So if anybody should have been able to reverse this, it should have been the apostles, right? should have been them. And you think they would have. I mean, he sent them out to give them power. They could heal, cast I mean, they did all kinds of stuff. And yet they didn't reverse the paradigm. They kept following the miraculous. And so when they witnessed the trial, the scourging, and the death of Jesus Christ, it crushed their faith. It absolutely crushed them and destroyed their faith. Now, Jesus had told Peter, you know, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I pray for you that what? Your faith will not fail. Peter overcame that, but now Jesus is crucified, and there goes his faith. They're absolutely dashed upon the rocks of unbelief. So when they're told by people who had seen Jesus after the resurrection that he was alive, they didn't believe him. I mean, Jesus told them more than once he's going to be, be risen the third day. He promised them the grave would not hold him, and yet people say, we saw him. I held him by the feet. We talked to him. We touched him. He's alive. All of the apostles, excluding none of them, would not believe what they were told. Why? Because their eyes had seen him die. They could not get what they saw with their eyes out of their mind. Now, I'm going to give you some advice right now. You need to shut off this junk that's going on in the world because you will not be able to get what you see with your eyes out of your mind. My wife did not like the way I dressed today. I am not imitating Johnny Cash, the man in black. I don't know why I dressed all in black. I just felt like it. But out there, he's making a statement. No, I'm not. He's making a political statement. No, I'm not. You want to know what lives matter in the apostolic church? All lives matter. Not only that, the unborn lives matter. We are not apolitical, we're apostolic. Don't get caught up in that junk. So Mark 16, 14, afterward, he appeared to the 11. Finally, he appears to the 11 as they sat at meat. And what did he do? He didn't say, hey, guys, how you doing? No, he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why? Because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. After all the high five and settled down, he said, I am so disappointed in you guys that you would not believe the testimony of those that saw me after the resurrection. Then after that, they telling Thomas, what did Thomas say? Paradigm, it's stuck, man. It is rooted deep. I will not believe. I don't 
care that you ten men. I know you, and I know you didn't see an apparition. I know who you are, and I trust you, but I will not believe until I touch the nail prints in his hand and put my hand into his riven side, and suddenly somebody's tapping him on the shoulder. Guess what? All of a sudden, Thomas believed because the paradigm is fixed. I'll believe it when I see it. Have you heard that before? I'll believe it when I see it. So here's the deal, and this is going to have an effect upon us. What it took for these disciples to believe, considering all things, is rather remarkable considering what they had witnessed and seen over a span of three and a half years, and they let one day, one day cancel it all out. And what is just as remarkable is that they would soon be preaching to others about this same risen Savior. And what's remarkable about that is that the salvation of those who would hear the gospel would require them to believe what these disciples would not even believe. And so I can honestly say that it is nothing short of shameful if we expect people to walk in the doors of our church and believe God for salvation and the miraculous if we do not believe ourselves. And yet we do it all the time. As Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives before he ascended up into heaven, he's determined uh, to reverse the paradigm back to its original state, its original format. And so he says in Mark 16, 14, he that believeth and is baptized, believeth and is baptized. Not just baptized. But you got to believe and be baptized. Of course, he that believeth not, they don't do anything. They're already damned. And so the word of God is replete with earthly and eternal benefits for them that believe and are baptized, of course, in the name of Jesus Christ. However, those who do not believe are repudiated and condemned in the word of God. That's why it's so important that we get the message of Jesus' name, baptism, out to the world. And then he says, in these signs, where he talk about he that believeth and is baptized, these signs shall follow them that believe. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name, would you stand? He's talking about you. He's talking about you. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But then he says there are signs. You see, I, he says, I'm going to reverse this once and for all. You're not going to follow signs. They're going to follow you. Thank you. You may be seated. We may call upon you to do that again later. The signs in my name shall they cast out devils. What in the world are you afraid of? The devil is more afraid of you than you are of him. They shall speak with new tongues. If you have the Holy Ghost and you don't talk in tongues, you better check your experience. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. 
If the spirit of him that raised up Christ dwelleth in you, it will also quicken your mortal bodies. These signs follow believers. They shall take up serpents if they drink any deadly thing. It shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. I, I must refer. I know I, I'm going too long, but it's, it's a bad habit of mine. But Jesus uh, wants to do something here, and, and I don't want to short-circuit it. But uh, some of you have seen the conversation between Lee Stone King and Art Wilson. And in the conversation, Brother Stone King said, um, people ask me, when did this start for you? And he said, what are you talking about? It, it started when I read it in the word of God that these signs would follow them that believe. It didn't, it didn't come after three years of prayer and fasting. It didn't come after I shut myself in a cave for five years and came out walking in the spirit. It started the moment I believed. I've heard Brother Stone King preach many times about the miraculous. I've never heard him say, if you'll go to the prayer room for nine hours, you can come out and lay hands on the sick. He preaches the miraculous. He doesn't talk much about prayer. Have you heard it? He doesn't get up there and say, you gotta, you got to pray five hours a day. you got to fast six days a week. you got to do this and all this like I do. And then God will answer your prayers. No, you've got to believe. So what does prayer do? Prayer gets rid of yourself. Fasting gets rid of yourself so you can believe. And I'm going to skip over some stuff here because um, it's only going to weigh us down. And we'll, You know we believe in the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Got to have it. Got to speak in tongues. as evidence you have the Spirit and so on. Um, but one of the reasons... Why miracles, signs, and wonders must follow believers and not the other way around is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. This is very important. Verse 23, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So we do not follow miracles, and those that do will be led astray. The Antichrist will be able to call fire down out of heaven. Wow. But unless they're preaching Acts 2.38, unless they're preaching the message of holiness and separation, unless they're preaching about the necessity of receiving the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, I don't care what they do. I don't care what fire they've got. I don't care how many people are healed. I'm not going. Satan is counting on the fact that man is stuck in the old paradigm where people follow miracles. And that's about all I have to say about that. Now we'll go to Luke chapter 4. Is it hot in here or is it just me? Ten more minutes and I'll be well done. I don't know about the rest of you. I know the clay's got to be put in the fire to, to get it hard, but this is ridiculous. Anyway, Luke 4, 16, he came, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. That's Jesus, of course. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for, the, for to read. And 
there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, you all have heard this a thousand times, and I know you're already withdrawing because you know exactly what we're going to say here. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this occurred after Jesus had been led of the Spirit into the wilderness where he spent 40 days fasting and being tempted of the devil. Even though Jesus... Uh, even Jesus, rather, could not step directly out of the carpenter shop with dust on his fingers and enter directly into ministry. He had to separate himself and prepare himself for the ministry that was placed upon him. After fasting and his 40 days in the wilderness, the Bible says he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, came out of the wilderness don't curse the wilderness. It's necessary. Many of the trials and tribulations that you go through are essential for God to mold you into the man and woman that you need to be to be used by God. But then he attends the small synagogue in Nazareth. And uh, this is the synagogue that he frequented when he was growing up every Sabbath. So uh, he is well known here by everyone, he reads a quotation from the book of Isaiah that prophetically pertains directly to him. Now, that's rare in itself, right? That the prophecy of uh, over 700 years old was pertaining to the person who was standing there reading it, all right? The first nine words of Isaiah's messianic prophecy pertains to every apostolic believer. So, well, that was for him. He was anointed for these purposes. Yes, he was. But the first nine words applies to every apostolic believer. They are, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because... Maybe the Spirit of the Lord is not on you because you have no because. The Spirit of the Lord was not on him in the carpenter shop. It wasn't on him when he was making furniture or repairing wagon wheels or whatever type of carpentry he did. The Spirit of God was not on him to be a better carpenter or to do better work. No, it was not on him until there was a reason for it. Now, we have rehearsed the reasons why the Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus Christ. It was to anoint him, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But the question is, why did God give you the Holy Ghost?
answer. Well, that has an obvious answer, like God gave me the Holy Ghost. And I know that's what everybody is thinking, because the simple answer is because I, he has to give me the Holy Ghost to fulfill what he said to Nicodemus in John 3 and 5. Except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is this the only reason that God gave you the Holy Ghost? Initially, perhaps, but after you walked out of the house of God or from camp meeting that night, and you wake up the next morning, now why do you have the Holy Ghost? The Bible emphatically states and declares that you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. We read it a thousand times at least. So we understand, and I want you now to know that, yes, God gives you the Holy Ghost because you have to be born of the Spirit in order to be saved and to enter the kingdom of God. But there are ancillary reasons beyond that that God gives you the Holy Ghost. See, not me. I'm not called to preach. I'm not talking to preachers. I'm talking to apostolic people. So beyond satisfying the requirements of being born again of water into the Spirit, I ask you again, why did God give you the Holy Ghost? Nobody said it better or with greater clarity than David when he was in the valley of Eoth and Goliath was uh, fomenting his challenge and charge against the men of Israel when he said, is there not a cause? Why did David go up against Goliath? We could, we could, we could cite any number of reasons, but I'm going to tell you what fits the narrative of the message and that day itself. He had a because. Nobody else in the, in the army had a because. He was the only one, and he stated it. Is there not a cause or a because? So here we are. A diminished number of people than what we were before this pandemic struck, and we're doing our best to recover from a pandemic that is, re, that is re-energizing itself. Over 10,000 people yesterday in the state of Florida, came down with COVID-19. We're trying to recover from a global pandemic. We're trying to, uh, with whatever resources we have at our disposal, recover from the collapse of our economy. We're all shaken in our mind and spirit over the anarchy that is running rampant and loose and unchallenged in the streets of America. We are grieved. I know this was not done in the corner. I know you know this. You heard this this week. That the Supreme Court granted constitutional privilege and protection to the most debased and immoral men and women of our society. You think these are not troubling times? My gosh. And so with all of this, are we not able to find the cause why we need a move of God in this place? Are we unable to come up with the cause for our Holy Ghost? Oh 
almost finished. The uh, story of Nazareth did not end there, neither did it end well um, following our Lord's prophetic declaration. Luke chapter 4 and 20, and he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The enormity of what he said there, besides everything else that he read from Isaiah, what he says here, the enormity of it is, it's mind-blowing. It is incredible. I mean, it's hard to even wrap your, your mind around it that he says this day, right here, right now, in front of this small group of, of, of Hebrews gathered in, in synagogue in Nazareth, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears right before your eyes, right here and now. And you would think that Nazareth, being the place where Jesus lived most of his life, and with the Messiah now publicly launching his earthly ministry from that point, from there, that Nazareth would have been ground zero for the, for the miraculous. You would think that the synagogue would begin to levitate and shake under the power of Almighty God that was present, but it didn't. It's written in Mark chapter 6, 5 and 6, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So the residents of Nazareth were giving, given a very unique and rare opportunity to be the first of humanity to have the Messiah and his deity revealed unto them and also to witness and experience his might and his power and yet they didn't. They didn't believe. And I have to wonder why in the world what would keep from believing? What could it possibly be that would prevent them with such an opportunity from believing? Jesus, Mark said, closed the book. When Jesus closed the book, it wasn't just closing the book of Isaiah. He was closing the book on Nazareth. He was closing the book on these people to whom he chose to, to reveal himself. And they reared back with indignation that this carpenter would declare to be the Messiah and to have such power from God. And he closed the book. There was no debate. There was no argument. He didn't try to convince them. He just closed the book. Why the incredulity? Why the unbelief? Why did they withdraw? 
given this opportunity? To me, there's just one answer. One answer. As complex as the human psyche is, to me, there's just one answer. It was because they were too familiar with Jesus the carpenter. They were stuck in a paradigm. We, we saw you grow up. We saw, we saw you work in your father's shop. We saw your mom and dad lead you by the hand to synagogue. They were caught in a paradigm that robbed them of one of the greatest opportunities given to anybody on the face of the earth. And so made me wonder if our familiarity with the presence of God, our familiarity with the, the men that minister in our local church, our familiarity with an atmosphere that is often charged by the power of the Holy Ghost is preventing us from ceasing the power and the manifestation that God wants to reveal to his people. My God. If not, I don't believe that I'm far off. Musicians, would you join me? As the children of Israel traversed the wilderness, um, there were a lot of really incredible things that happened along the way as they were marching toward their appointed destiny. But along the way, God attempted to reverse that destructive paradigm of faith. So when the children of Israel entered the wilderness of sin and they camped in a place called Rephidim, there was no water to drink. And uh, yeah, it's not like, okay, we'll fix it tomorrow. I mean, they went a number of days in the wilderness. You, you have to have water. And it became a desperate situation. So they began to complain. Hear me when I tell you that complaining to God is not going to get you anywhere. Poor mouthing yourself to God is not going to release his power. They complained to Moses. They were upset with Moses. And it wasn't Moses' fault. Moses didn't go drain the wells. I mean, it, but he was, the, he was the man at the top. So he compl they complained. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thy hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb and thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Water came out. Later in their journeys the people would encamp at Kadesh and they would experience the same dilemma. You see, we have a problem. If God heals us one time, we have more of a problem believing that he'll do it again. Has God ever healed you? Then why do you, don't th why do you think he won't do it again? And so they were out of water, and they complained again. And the Lord speaks to Moses again, Numbers 27. He says, 
Verse 8, now take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron the brother, and speak ye unto the rock. Now, speak to the rock. Talk to the rock. Before their eyes, let them see you talking to the rock. And it shall give forth his water. Not its water, his water. You ever seen that? It's not its water. I never referred to a rock as a he or a she before. But God did. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so shalt thou give the congregation to the congregation, and their beast drink. And Moses took the rod before the Lord as he commanded. And Moses gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. The rest of the story is impertinent. But water did come out of the rock. Both times, God providentially provided water for the children of Israel out of the rock. Out of the rock. Not a rock. Out of the rock. It was out of a very specific rock. Now try to stay tuned for just a minute. He didn't send Moses out and say, pick out a rock and smite it. Or go pick out a rock and talk to it. No, he said, you go smite the rock and you go speak to the rock and water will come forth. It's interesting here that 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. See, God wants to establish a paradigm of faith in his church. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And, he, and did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. These signs shall follow them that believe. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. This is how far God will go to convince us to believe and trust him. From the first day, you can stand with me, from the first day that the children of Israel followed Moses out of Egypt, the next morning when they found themselves out of Egypt in a large group of people wondering about what's going to happen next, there was a rock that was close behind them. When they crossed through the Red Sea, got on the other side, the first night they camped out of the, uh, on the other side of the Red Sea, there was that rock, the same rock that was just outside of camp. It was just behind them. It followed them. For the next 40 years, everywhere they went throughout the wilderness, when they made camp that night, that rock was right behind him. It was right there. It was always in the same place. You didn't have to go looking for it. You didn't have to search for it. It was always right there behind them. And so it wasn't long before God said, hey, go to the rock. And Moses knew exactly where to go and exactly what to do. God was establishing the paradigm 
that miracles will follow you wherever you go. Say, well, I'm not a very spiritual person. Well, I'm sorry for that. I'm disappointed in that. And I'm sure God is too. But he didn't say these signs shall follow them that are spiritual. I'm just being honest with you. He said, these signs shall follow them that believe. He established the premise of that faith by those that believe and are baptized. And so Jesus has ordained that there will be marvelous things that will follow those or them that believe their signs. And this was all over me throughout the course of my meditating and, and uh, making notes in prayer concerning this particular message. I couldn't get away from it, and it is still pressing on me right now. The woman with an issue of blood, the Bible says, came behind him in the press. Again, Jesus is doing everything he can to realign the paradigm. She comes behind him in the press. And she's sick and she's tired and she's weak and she's broke and she's discouraged and she's depressed and everything is against her. But she says, look, if, if I can just touch, just rub my hand across the hem of his garment, I believe I will be made whole. And so she did. I always picture her crawling along the way and finally about to completely give out just reach out people all around her, stepping on her, bumping into her. She finally reaches out, but here's what God has been impressing me with. Why did it take the sick woman to touch him? Why did it take a broken woman to touch Jesus? Why wasn't there anybody in his entourage that say, would you stop, can't you see there's somebody that needs a miracle? took a broken woman, a sick woman, to touch Jesus so that virtue flowed out of him when there were healed people, well people all around him that ignored her need. Because we got it. We're all right. We've been touched. We got our Holy Ghost. We got our blessing. And I believe a lot of times there are people with desperate needs in our midst, but we got ours. We got our blessing on. We got our victory. We got our healing. And we just go ahead and do our little thing and let them struggle and let them press and let them push and let them hope that somehow they might get something from God out of this service. If a sick woman can touch him, and can release his virtue, then what can we do? What are we capable of? Tuesday night, prayer in the church. Wednesday morning, ladies gather for prayer. I've been doing it for years and years. Led by Sister Bruce. 
There's been a group coming to the church every morning for weeks now. At 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning, praying every morning for weeks. Sunday mornings in the back room, we walk through a sanctuary where the worship team had, has already gathered and prayed. And we go back to the prayer room to pray. What are we doing? I'm tired of sick people walking out of our church amongst the people of God that are blessed and enriched by His glory and yet they're sick and they're not healed. I believe it's time that somebody knows I've got to get God in this place. I've got to get the, the power of God in this place. I've got to get a hold of God not because I need it but because they need it. That's what the prayer is for. You think we need more blessing? <coughs> you think we need to talk in tongues for another hour to satisfy us? It's not about that. Not about heaven, better church. And so I prayed for months. I'm serious. I prayed for months. Every Sunday that somebody will walk in the doors of our church with an alabaster box. The saints come and go. They're so satisfied and content. If God moves or he don't, it's not that big a deal. And I've wished for months, God, would you send somebody to walk down the aisle of our church with an alabaster box and change the atmosphere of our worship. And then the Holy Ghost spoke to me a couple weeks ago and I, I, am, I am still reeling from this. I, I haven't figured it out. He said, why doesn't the whole church break their alabaster box? What if a whole church would break the alabaster box? What if every prayer warrior would break the box? What if every Holy Ghost-filled person would walk in the door and say, I'm not going to be satisfied with goosebumps today. I'm not going to be satisfied with a trickle blessing. I'm not going to be satisfied with a warm feeling in my soul I'm going to lay it all on the line I'm, I'm going to give it all to God and I believe that I'm speaking the heartbeat of God right now see Simon this was in Simon's house Simon was a leper that Jesus had healed and Simon's going come on woman you're messing up my party come on woman you're you're messing up my dinner come on woman you're you're messing with things we had something else planned get her out of here come on come on this is uncomfortable this is embarrassing he should have been the one on the floor anointing the feet of Jesus used to be a leper I used to live in a leper's camp but I'm sitting with my family in my home with Jesus at my table has it been so long since God delivered you from cigarettes? Has it been so long since he took the smell of alcohol off your breath? Has it been so long he delivered you from your lifestyle and your immorality? Has it been that long that we have forgotten? 
Church starts at 11 o'clock now. Hopefully we'll be able to move back to Sunday school soon. 11 o'clock is for sinners. 11 o'clock is not for saints. 11 o'clock is for sinners. It's for unbelievers. For those that are bound by, by sin, by unbelief. It's not for the redeemed of God. That's for visitors and guests and neighbors and Walking among my people. I come among you every week. And I keep wondering when is somebody going to stop me in the aisle and grab a hold of my garment or my feet and believe me for their miracle. When is somebody going to grab a hold of me so that I can do what I came to do. My God. My God. My God. Hallelujah, Jesus. My God. My God. Mahale, mahadela, mahatele. Hallelujah, Jesus. Find a place to pray right now. It's not the conventional everybody in the altar. Find a place. Fall on your face before God. Repent. And ask God for his forgiveness. For the lethargy and the apathy and the nonchalance about our walk with God in a lost world. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Get on your face and find it because... Come on, you've got to find it because in your own life. Mine won't work. Nobody else's will work. It's got to be your personal because between you and your God. We're not coming and laying hands on you right now. This is between you and God. Come on, the day will come when we be, we'll be able to mingle again. But right now, just pray. 
Just cry out to God right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let something break within you. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. My God, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, God, thank you for your presence, God. Thank you for your awesome presence, Jesus. Don't close the book on us, Jesus. Don't close the book just yet, God. We're listening, Jesus. We can hear what you're saying, Jesus. Oh, God, hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, God, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on, God, help us, Lord, help us. It's your will to heal the sick. It's your will to save the lost. It's your will to deliver the addict from their addiction. It's your will to put families back together and to restore lives. It's your will. It's why you died. That's your because. And it's got to become our because. Come on, somebody stop him. Come on, somebody stop him. Don't let him go on. You may, you may think he's going to try and walk on, and he will. You've got you to gotta not let him go. You've got to get a hold of him and not let him go until you get what you need. Come on, we've got to change the atmosphere of our church. Thank you, Jesus. 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 My God. My God. The Holy One of Israel is in our midst. He is here right now. He wants to heal us and bless us, empower us and strengthen us. He wants to use us in this end time for great revival. He's not here to rebuke us. He's here to forgive us. Hallelujah, Jesus. 
Don't wait for God to give you a reason to pray because when he does, you're not going to like it. Don't wait for God to build you an altar because when he does, you're not going to like it. My God. My God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Come on, Jesus had walked by and Blind Bartimaeus cried out. They tried to shut him up. That's what your flesh is going to do for you. It's going to try to shut you down and shut you up. Don't let him get away this time. Don't let him slip by this time. Don't let him walk out the door this time. Not today. Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. My God, my God, my God, my God. My God, my God. My God, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. One God, we're on our faces before you right now. We don't want Nazareth written on the door of our church. We don't want Ichabod written on the door of our church. We don't want people to talk about the church we used to be or the people we used to be. God, help us today, Jesus. Oh, God, you have the key of David. God, open the door before us that no man can shut. My God, we'll go through that door to whatever awaits us and whatever meets us on the other side. Because we've heard from you today. We've heard the word of God today. <laughs> Hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah. My God, hallelujah. My God, hallelujah. Oh God, receive us today. Receive our worship, Jesus. Receive our brokenness, oh God. Lord, you said that a broken heart and a contrite spirit you would not despise. Receive us in the spirit within which we approach you right now. My God, my God, my God. Hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Go ahead and pray. Just don't forget your 
tithe and offering before you leave. Just pray as long as you want to. Make all the time you need. This is really important with God. Thank you, Jesus.